We're called Reforming Church. That's our, for want for a better term, our, our brand name, our personal name. Whichever one you prefer to use, personal name, brand name, whatever it is. We're not a St Andrews, although that would be okay, but people would ask, who's Andrew? Uh, and why is it his church? We're not um, kind of a, a church by any other name. We're reforming because that's our history. It's also who we are theologically as a reformed church. But it also means something for us personally. It means that we aren't the ones changing the way God has made things in the world and what God is doing in the world. It's him changing us. So that his word, the Bible, his gospel word in Christ, the good news of Jesus, changes us. He is the authority. He is the one we glory in. He is the one we enjoy. We are reforming church. And our history has some history in the Reformation. You may not have heard of the Reformation. It's a big part of the history of the world. It has shaped much of what we see and experience around us, although our society would want to neglect that. Our society speaks about the Enlightenment, but they forget the Enlightenment only happened because of Reformation, because of people saying, let's get back to the sources, ad fontes, and all the going back to the original of writings and readings and, and the things of that actually have helped us know and, and learn things about what our world's really about. As I look at the Reformation and I look at our church and our society today, I wonder, perhaps when it comes to the, the subject of money, we need another Reformation. Um, you may have seen it, I've seen it. If you flick through the channels, you can see kind of free-to-wear Christian television. And it's around and there are different channels and I'm not here, I'm not a particular commentator on television um, but I've noticed this, Christian television presents to us in our lounge room, but also to probably our neighbours if they're also flicking through the channels, a presentation of Christianity that our world has come to know, because our world generally, that's all they see and hear of what Christianity is. And lately I've noticed it's a lot of, um, in the 80s they used to be called tele-evangelists, I'm not sure if they've got a different name today, but a lot of, well here's the presentation and here's the phone number, and if you give to this, and it's all kind of going okay so far, I, I get you've got to pay the bills, but if you give to this, then, then you'll get more money. Now, that has got lots of problems in it if it's, if it's just presented like that. And it's named... Prosperity preaching, prosperity gospel, it's, 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 it's a message of Christianity that is really not the message of Christianity, but it's given in a sense of, we're all about making money. And we're all about building our little kingdoms. So our church, whatever it is, might have a name, but it's about building this particular name and this brand and this personality and this platform and this church and this kingdom. It's about this, it's almost being like a business in the world. And a lot of people see that the church presented like this and it gives a bad taste of what the church is meant to be about, but it also presents not what the Bible would show the church is about and certainly not why we give for our gospel giving. Back in 1517, so just over 500 years ago, 
the prosperity gospel had another name. It existed, it was called indulgences. In 1517, famously, there's a guy and his name is Johann Tetzel and he served, he worked in the Roman Catholic Church. And the majority of the Western world was in the Roman Catholic Church. That was the church you were born into and you didn't know anything different. And Johann Tetzel, his job was to travel from town to town and he would sell indulgences. So he would say to people, rich and poor, if you give money, you give more money to the church, your relative's soul, which is in purgatory, once they get enough money, that gives them merit that they'll spring to heaven. Now, we don't have more morning to go into that, but you can read about it, Google it. It's a real problem. It existed. Not making this up. Johann Tetzel, the selling of indulgences. There was a saying at the time, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. That is prosperity gospel, which is not the gospel. It's not good news at all, is it? It's bad news, particularly for the poor. That is a problem that still exists today. And some of our neighbours who we want to reach out with the love of Christ have become confused and think that's what Christianity is about. And it's not. And that's why we need another reformation. We need to be clear on why Christ is our treasure and how that shapes why we would give money in the first place. There was another guy around the time of 1517, you may have heard of this person, he's Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther the Reformer, and Martin Luther was a German monk, and he noticed, he also being born in the Roman Catholic system, noticed this and found it to be problematic. So problematic, uh, he went to a university door in Wittenberg, now in those days, if you wanted to give a notice, you know, if you want to find the notice board and say, look, I've got, got a flat to rent, I'm needing a housemate, and here's the tags at the bottom, you, you kind of rip off. You did that, you did that, the notice door was the university door, like the, the door of the, I don't recommend doing it today, don't go to Latrobe, and oh, I want to put it on the door, you know, but that's what they did, right? So, so the, there's a big notice door, and, and there's all these notices and all these things that have been announced. And he found a little spot, you know, trying to, I want to cover that one because that would make something annoyed with me. But he found a spot and he put his 95 things I've got to say, which is nicknamed the 95 Theses. Theses, just so you hear me rightly on that one. 95 things I'm going to say, and I'm feeling I need to say it. And he nailed it to the door. He said, it's hammer time. And as he put it to the door... A couple of things he said, Theses 27 and 28, spoke against indulgences. He said this, Auf kein Feigl. I don't speak German, so I'm doing my best. In other words, no way. Now, I think there's some probably people that probably have a bit of German background or connection. They're like, whoa, they just made a mess of that. The point is, to his own people, the German people he saw around, the poor and the wealthy. They were being sold something that wasn't the gospel. And he, at the threat of his own neck, put his neck on the line and said, No! Let me tell you some good news. And Martin Luther, as you, if you know and you can Google him, his whole ministry after his conversion to understanding and rediscovering the gospel was all about grace. 
Here is a man who struggled with guilt, struggled with shame, struggled with thinking God is just this kind of angry man upstairs who's just willing to whack him at a moment's notice. When he got the gospel of grace, it changed his life. They say that you look at paintings of Martin Luther before he rediscovered the gospel and he looks kind of gaunt and sad and, and sullen and darkened eyes. And then you look at pictures and paintings after he's rediscovered the gospel of grace and he's just full of joy and haughty and kind of full of life. And um, just, it changed his life and he wanted to see others in their lives change too. We're in a mini-series looking how the gospel changes us and particularly with our time, talents and treasure. The reason we picked that this year as we head up to our family gathering of the congregational meeting today, which you're all welcome and invited to, please stay for morning tea, we're going to have coming in here, it goes for about half an hour, just so you know timing, it, it, it I think is fun, you know, the numbers stuff I try and understand, but the rest, it, it, all, the whole thing is fun. We're going to celebrate, lament, pray, and the reason we've picked this series up until time, talents and treasures, because when we become members of Reforming Church, the entry level for membership is being a Christian. So we say, firstly, I trust in Jesus. Secondly, I want to serve in the church. And thirdly, that means I realize that God has given me time. He's given me talents and he's given me treasure. And I want to, in, in that way, serve by giving. But the reason we give, and we say this in our membership vows, is by God's grace. And grace does change everything, friends. Not by guilt. Not so you get more. Not by any other way, but by God's grace do we give. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 particularly. If you've been around reforming for a while, you know that 2 Corinthians is my favourite letter of the New Testament because it speaks about weakness that actually God works in weakness. I love that because that's me. I'm often wrong, always weak, and yet God works in the weak ones, in the least of these. And in chapters 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul, who writes to a church who's, well, we saw last week, we saw in 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church, as we saw in the kids' talk, they've got lots. Big church, mega church, they've got platform preachers, they're famous They've got all these resources, all these talents. And Paul is writing to this church to encourage them to be giving because one of the problems the Corinthian church has got, whilst they've got all this stuff and all these resources and people, they've also got lots of problems. They're dysfunctional. They've got lots of sin, cover-ups, issues among them, pride, competition, boasting. And so Paul writes to them, and notice when he writes them, he looked in chapters 8 and 9, he doesn't write to them with a scolding nature. No one is scolded into seeing who Jesus is and how glorious he is. No one's sort of, you don't sort of, you don't preach in such a way, you know, you're all terrible, look how great Jesus is. It's not very compelling. Paul doesn't write like that. He, he shows them the glorious, wonderful beauty of Christ. And he says, that's what we can be a part of. As he writes this letter, it's deeply personal for him. These people are dear to him, they're precious to him. So he picked it up there in chapter 8, verse 1. 
I hope you've got a Bible in front of you or near you, but I'm just going to read a few verses just to get this and see this. The first point is that Paul writes is giving is about grace. We're going to see this, what giving is about. Firstly, from the get-go, against Johann Tetzel, against indulgences, giving is about grace. It's about grace. Verse 1 of chapter 8. I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now notice this, just pause. You know Nick and the kids talk, I thought that was a beautiful kids talk, by the way. They'll be talking about that for a while. But Nick showed us on the stage the map. Macedonia is to the north of Corinth. It's not far away, it's just north. It's kind of in that kind of Greek part of the world. And Macedonia is in the north. That's where the church of Philippi was. We just finished a series in the book of Philippians. Philippi is up the north, and that church, poor churches, small churches. He says, you know about the grace of God in those churches, and Corinth down south, big church, verse 2, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us, earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints and this not as we expected but they gave themselves first to the lord and then by the will of god to us these macedonians these philippians had given with joyful generosity and they even begged to take part they gave out of love Friends, for us, what does that mean? I think it means for our hearts, don't underestimate the possibility of giving like that. Don't underestimate the possibility of what love and joy in Jesus could do for your heart and change the way we view others and how we give. The measure of our joy is understanding how much you understand of grasp what God has done for you in Christ. Now, I want you to notice this. For the Macedonians, it's not about fundraising. You see this? Like, it's not like Paul wrote them a fundraising letter and here's what you need to do and, and here's sort of the structure of it. It's not about that. It's about faith raising. It's actually about Jesus first. It's actually about understanding, do you see who he is for you? And it's Jesus who says himself in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Where can you tell where your heart is? Where are your affections for in life? It's what do you hold most dearly? What do you treasure? Now, when we come to talk about money, we find it tricky, if not difficult. Anyone does, I think. Um, Our elders, we just had a brief catch-up this morning and one of them said, oh, hey, how are you feeling today? And I said, I'm actually a little bit stressed. Um, and this is not about me, but I just let me just tell you how I feel about talking about money. I get a bit stressed. I've got a stress headache going on my shoulders, not my neck and in my head. It's not bad. I'll recover. You know, I'd need to drink more water, my wife tells me. She's right. I don't. So I just go, yes, more water. Coffee's got water in it, hasn't it? Sure it has H2O in there somewhere. More coffee. That's the solution. Probably the my problem is that. But I, I don't like talking about money. And 
because I know the context I live in and, and I know that my neighbours watch and flick through the channels and, and it's just, it's, I, I get that I'm, it's like blowing into the wind. But when I remember that Jesus talks about money, God himself talks about money a lot. As Brenna Michelle said, that's the authority, isn't it? Paul says in verse 6, Accordingly, we urge Titus, as he had started, he should complete among you this act of grace, he says. It's an act of grace. Because you excel in everything, he says in verse 7. You excel in faith, in speech, in knowledge, all earnestness. And in a love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace. Also, it's an act of grace. This is where Paul grounds, he grounds deeply what giving is about. It's about grace. And what is the reason for giving? Secondly, it's the other's need. It's the other's need. Look at verse 8. We need to hear this because I think we hear in churches, perhaps we've heard it here accidentally or it's been accidentally said in such a way that could be heard this way. But here clearly, verse 8, I say this not as a command or depending on what state you're from in Australia, command, command, command. I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. It's not about commanding people. It's about love. To show that our love for Jesus is... is, Do I love Jesus and does that change me? Do I know Jesus' love for me? Does it change me? Paul's judgment in verse 10 is that we give for the sake of the other. Verse 11. So now finish doing it well so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your, com- your completing it out of what you have. Completing it requires that we actually think diligently about others and how we serve others. Now notice in verse 12 that giving does not depend on what you don't have. Because I think we often can go that way. Well, I don't have much compared to whoever. But it's not based on what you don't have. It's not like you say, well, if I just had more, if God gave me more, then I could give. But, okay, think of the Macedonians. Think of the Philippian church. It's not about what you don't have, it's what you do have, what God has given you. And we give as an act of grace. And then thirdly, the method. What is the method? Look in verse 16. In verse 16, Paul says, thanks be to God, he's thankful for people like Titus, who is overseeing this act of grace, and this role for others is that there's people there that look, look over this giving, they care for it, they're, they're overseers of it, so that includes Titus in that sense. But we see in verse 19, and not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us, to carry out this act of grace that has been ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. What is, what is Paul saying? He's saying, giving money is a serious business. Friends, I probably don't need to say this, but around the world there are preachers who have secretly or been found out basically been conducting fraud. 
So people who preach on giving and perhaps it's just the preacher, it's the pastor who has access to the, the blue box, the collection, and then somehow it's been found out later that they've been taking a little bit of extra cut for themselves. That, that happens and it's devastating to the gospel witness and to the church. And Paul writes here, but also in other places, that shouldn't be the case. Why? Because we have other people who oversee this. It's why we in our church here, in the Presbyterian church, we have elders who oversee, they shepherd the flock of God among us. And then there's another group called the board of management. So the elders don't touch the money. We don't count it. We don't see the giving. We don't know who gives, how it gives, all that sort of stuff. That's, it's not for us. For good reason, because it's actually diligent and directed how we care for the giving, you know, gospel giving for God's mission in the world. It's important we're transparent. Today in our annual congregational meeting, we're going to hand out booklets, the Reforming Report. We write everything in those booklets. I'm the only person, I think, in our congregation who has their wages written up for everyone to see. So you you see everything. We're transparent. Those books get audited. The money is handled by the Board of Management. It's important that it's diligent and directed and overseen with care. And then some people ask, well, how much could I give? Should I give? And I think sometimes we secretly kind of just want someone to tell me. Tell me the figure. You know, it's all very well, tell me the grace, but I want to know exactly the figure. Come with me to 1 Corinthians 16. So all you need to do is just go back a little bit in your Bible. It's the letter just before 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 16. And in 1 Corinthians 16, we see here uh, helpful words for about how much or how we give. There's other places in the Bible too, but here's a helpful little paragraph. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, and guess which day the first day of the week is, by the way? Uh, Welcome to it. It's called the Lord's Day, Sunday. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he or she may prosper, so that we know collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. See, that again, that caring for that collection. But here's the point for this section. How much to give? Well, look at the wording there. Where to be thoughtful, regular, and to put something aside as you may prosper, as you are able A lot of people say at this point, well, let's talk about the tithe. Now, in the Old Testament, there's a thing called a tithe. The word tithe just means tenth. And at this point, you could read Leviticus 27, verse 30, that there's every tithe of the land, every tenth, whether that be the seed of the land or the fruit of the land, is the Lord's, it's holy to the Lord. That, That there, by the way, before we even talk about tithe, I know sometimes people feel like a bit of a pushback against tithe. Can I ask, who who invented the idea of tithe? Who created that? Was it a church? Was it a preacher? Was it a pastor? Whose idea is the tithe? You can fill in the blank. 
It's God's idea. So before we have pushback against kind of a tithe, it's, it's God's idea. 10%. Now, here's the thing. In the Old Testament, it's not just the 10%. It's, if you add up all the giving, in fact, it's about 23.3%. But 10% is a law in the Old Testament, not a law in the New Testament. It's not a law. But for those who think, well, how much do I give and what does it mean to give cheerfully? Well, if you're going to use 10% as a guide, not a law, it's a guide, if you do that, just be aware of a few things. One, a legalism of our hearts. Because a legalism of our hearts says, well, as long as I give up to 10%, then I'm being cheerful. But a legalism of our hearts could also say, you know, I don't want to do that because I want to give 3% or whatever it is you want to give less than that because then I can be cheerful about it. We want to be careful about that. That's a legalism, isn't it? Because it says, I get to decide what cheerful is, and I get to decide what I treasure, and I get to decide what is, what is law or rule or guide or not. And we just want to be careful about that, friends, because our hearts are not, are not as perfect as God's heart. But just say we use 10% as a guide. If we did that, the New Testament doesn't give us that as a law. What does the New Testament say? What is the guide? What is the law of love? It's not about 10%, it's about generosity. You see, generosity might be more than 10%, mightn't it? Because when we think about the gospel, when Jesus goes to the cross, does he give 10%? Does he think, you know what, I can only really give sort of 9% or 3%? Like, he gives generously, friends. Generously. So, if you want to use 10% as a guide, that could be helpful. But hear this, it's not law in the New Testament. What is the law of love? It's generosity. It's cheerful generosity. That is what God loves. It's for our love. And as we think about that, being diligent and directed, we think the way of generosity... Because the problem of the opposite of stinginess is I know in stinginess in my heart will tend to corrupt me. And I start thinking, I, I, I read this quote by John Piper, you may not know who that is, but uh, he's an older man that um, serves in ministry. And he said this wisely, he said, it's not about how much I should give, but how much I dare to keep. And I think there's something in that. Whether you want to disagree with that, or not, I, I do think our hearts need to ponder that for a moment. Whatever guide, law of love you use, it's about cheerful generosity. It's about thinking about diligent and directed, planned, prayerful giving. And it's all about ultimately the gospel. That's the motivation. That's the fourth point. The motivation is the gospel, which is why in this sermon I'm careful not to tell you 10%. I don't want to give you some sort of rule of God that you can go, yeah, I met that and now I'm righteous. Now your righteousness comes from Christ alone and the motivation therefore for giving is not a rule of law. It's, it's actually look at Christ. You need to see Christ and see what Christ has done for you. That will then change everything. 
So come with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're going to pick it up in verse 7. So you turn back 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Each one must give as they've decided in their heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Friends, guilt should never be used for a motivation for giving. Uh, let, hear me rightly. Guilt should never be used for a motivation for anything. If you know your life, if you know your history, if you know your search history, if you know your sin, you know your guilt. You know you're guilty. I know my guilt. To use guilt to get people to give won't work beyond Wednesday. But our society does this when it comes to giving. And I know that sometimes they're, they're kind of grasping at ways. How can we get people to give? So we will show the, the, the poor person or the, whatever it is, the person in need on television, and we'll say, if you just gave this much, this person would move from this to this. And In a sense, you need the information, but you've got to be careful about using guilt. And especially when it comes to God. Because God does not relate to us by guilt now. In the gospel, he relates to us by grace. Secular commentators Clive Hamilton and Richard Dennis published a work they called Affluenza. So it's a, it's a book, it's called Affluenza. Let me read from it. They point out that in Australia's economic growth, and this was before recent difficulties... But many in Australian society, with exceptions, are wealthy. We're double income. We're professionals. But they say we're also addicted to consumer goods, fueled by personal debt. And they note we're not getting any happier. We live in one of the most prosperous times in the most prosperous place in human history. And yet... We're sad. We're not cheerful. We even have a federal government that at times gives us money so that we would spend money to revive the economy. The simple truth is this, friends. As an average Australian, let me speak about me. Put me in the spotlight. As an average Australian, I am magnificently wealthy compared to the world. I am magnificently wealthy. But here's the paradox. I often don't think I am. For the problems that we see, we often compare ourselves to the mega rich. There's always someone richer than me. There's always someone that's got more than me that I compare myself to. Martin Luther said, what we need is a reformation. And he said this, I love this, he said, when a believer gets converted, there are three things that get converted. He said, firstly, it's their head gets converted in the way they think. Secondly, it's their heart gets converted. And then third and last, it's their wallet gets converted. As your pastor, 
as one of your elders, we know up close and personal things about one another, don't we? You ask me to, you, you want me to listen to your angst or hurts and pray about your struggle with anger and pray about your struggle with lust. But often we don't ask, could you pray about my struggle with money, where my heart lies? But if you look at the quantity of airtime that the Bible gives to money, it is striking. The Bible talks about money, 16 of 36 parables, 16 of them, only half of them are about money. You can ask, why is that? Why would Jesus pick that topic so much? And in Matthew 6, Jesus shows that we should invest more in the heavenly business than earthly business. And God cares for us, so we don't have to worry. See, this cheerfulness is something God wants for us. Look, if I didn't grow up Presbyterian, but if you grew up Presbyterian, you know this because you were taught this as a kid. What is the chief end of humanity? What is our purpose? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Enjoy Him. God wants us to be cheerful. He wants us to have joy. Not because He gives us more money, but because He gives us Himself. And this brings us to the key central motivation in this passage as we finish. I want you to look at 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. We hear this at times when we talk about our giving each week. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Friends, do you see? This is where we get to finish and think now. We have been given grace, and so we give by grace. The gospel changes everything. This verse is the spine of these two passages. It's the, it's the central thing that holds our giving together. And Jesus tells a story about a man in, in Matthew 13. He tells a story about a man who's out in the paddock, and in the paddock, Perhaps he's digging up a garden or he's, he's working it with his cultivator. He's got the air sitter going. All of a sudden, it's like, you know, he's the revs go down. Right? And, and he's like, there's something there. And so he stops and he gets out. He's like, ah, oh, I'm stopped again. You know? And then he, there's something buried in the ground and he, he, go, he digs it up and he, he finds it's a treasure. And he goes, look, this is worth all and the rest I own. And what does he do? Jesus says in this parable, he sells the whole thing. The air seater, the tractor, the farm, the whole thing's gone. He sells the whole thing because he's got the treasure. In the parable, Jesus says, that's what it's like when you discover the king, the kingdom who is Christ. Is you'd be willing to say, I'd give up anything for this. And it changes the way we view. And God is not telling us to give 100% each each and now giving, he's saying, you know, you can just give cheerfully, generously, because you've been given that much. You've been given a treasure. Bendigo has a history of treasure seekers. Why does this city exist? It's because of mining, because of people digging in the ground. If you go to the tourist information office and you're new to this place, this whole city, and not to alarm anyone, is riddled with mine shafts. 
but we're very careful, we've capped them all, no problems. No one's going to fall through the stage today, right now. Bendigo is a city of people that are looking for treasure. What we want, what we pray, is they would find the real treasure, who's Christ. And it would change everything for them. This changed everything for us. Someone once said, there is no one richer, no one richer than the Lord of the universe. And there is no one poorer than a naked man hung up on a cross. He's our God. He gives all. He gives by grace. We can give by grace too. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we say the words of 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for your inexpressible gift. We would not have the words to say, to describe of the ages, a thousand tongues to sing, but we know you've given us Christ, our treasure. And so we pray that having lives that worship him, him as our centre of gravity in an unstable world, the foundation on which we build our lives, that we would now be able to, by your grace, give cheerfully, generously for the work of your kingdom in this world. And we ask this as we continue to worship you in song. In Jesus' name, amen.